Hello, my friends, and welcome once again to the Deeper Daily Podcast for the eighth day of December. I'm your host, Paul White. Thanks for joining me. Here's an announcement that you're going to want to jump in on because even if you don't normally listen to the midweek drop, because we do a full-length sermon every week, and it's sequential study from our Tuesday night group in Georgia. We've done the book of John, and we've done the book of 1 John. But last night, we started a brand new series, and it's not, we're not titling it such and so number one, number two, number three. Each week we'll have a different title of something inside of the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of the book of Matthew, more popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount. We are doing a, an extended look at the three probably most famous chapters from the teaching ministry of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And I couldn't be more excited about this series. I have wrestled with and dealt with and looked at and prayed over the Sermon on the Mount for years. I've done a lot of work out of it, but I've never done a real top-to-bottom study. Or at least it's been so long I don't remember what I did with it. But as we journey through this, I think you're going to have some powerful revelations about this very one simple idea. Jesus is the king in a kingdom, and he's telling you, the subjects of the kingdom, how to live as citizens of that kingdom in the midst of this world. The world you live in doesn't look like the kingdom. It's why we need the Sermon on the Mount. And the opening quote we use in the series, and I'm telling you this because it's up today. First lesson from the Sermon on the Mount series will be up today on our website, paulwhiteministries.com. The audio will be available right where you're hearing this podcast. Uh, But the the opening line that we use is the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount There is more to Christianity than the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, but there is never less. So saddle up, buckle up, get ready. It's going to be quite a journey. Check it out. It'll drop. The first of it will drop today and every Wednesday from here on in the foreseeable future and maybe even the unforeseeable future, we'll deal with the Sermon on the Mount. All right. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham has cut the animals in half. We found yesterday that the book of Jeremiah tells us that that's the process of covenant. I promised you I would explain that, so let me try. What we know is that when covenant was cut, there were several things that were a necessity in order for that to be considered a covenant. One of the first things, and the most obvious things, thing, is there had to be multiple parties trying to come to some form of consensus. So... Party A and Party B bring their ideas and their opportunities and their giftings to the table. And A enters into what we might consider some form of treaty with B and vice versa. And A makes an offer. Here is what I bring to the table. And B makes an offer and says, here's what I bring to the table. And they enter into a much more binding idea than a contract. A contract would be a legal document between two parties, but in the ancient world, they 
believed that the way to truly bind those two parties to that contract was through the shedding of blood. It does no good to, not, not really, doesn't really do much good to shed the blood of the covenant partners. So they would shed the blood of a sacrificial animal and most likely multiple animals, they would both have to bring something to the, to the table. So they might both bring a bull or both bring a goat so that they had equal skin in the game. Kind of like if you and a partner started a business, you put, both put 50% in. That's really the only ethical way to begin that business. Both have the same amount of skin in the game. And so you would take the animal and cut it in half and put its pieces, one on the left side of the trail, one on the right, you would drench the trail in the blood of those sacrificial animals, and the two parties involved would pass between the pieces of the animal. You would literally trot on the blood. And it was a bloody, smelly, dirty mess of an affair for the obvious reasons that you were entering into something upon which something gave its life. Therefore, you were crossing that blood, stepping across that bloodline so that as a way of saying to the partner in the covenant relationship, so be it unto me if I do not keep my end of the covenant. In other words, if I don't do what I promised I would do, let me die in the manner of this animal. And, and in some traditions, particularly in, the, like, say, the Native American culture, there might be some shedding of the blood between the covenant partners. Perhaps cut your hand open, clasp hands, or be some mingling of the blood. But in the Hebrew culture, there doesn't seem to be that as much as it does trotting of the blood of the animal. And then there would be some form of meal instituted. We get an example of this. At Sinai, when Israel enters into the Mosaic Covenant way up in Exodus, Moses and the elders go to the top of the mountain and have a meal, effectively with the angel of God. And they, by sort of breaking bread and sharing the wine, they're repeating the Melchizedek incident. This is what makes Jesus' offer of his body and his blood so both poignant and powerful in John 6 when he tells the crowd, unless a man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has no part in me. The eating of flesh um, would have been considered the entry into covenant. The drinking blood, that's caused a lot of consternation among scholars because Israel didn't drink blood. But we could say that it's an allegory there for participating in the shed blood. Some would even say that by saying, drink my blood, Jesus is offering a chance to pass between the pieces, to step on that cross across that bloodline and enter into a covenant relationship with him. The reason, by the way, that Jesus is so rejected when he does that, John 6 says that his crowds left him. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, will you leave also? And Peter goes famously says, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And one of the reasons why the crowd leaves Jesus is because by offering them the blood, the bread and the blood, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, he's asking them to enter into covenant with him. And Israel is only in covenant with God. And so to enter into covenant with Jesus, to have that sort of relationship 
could be viewed as spiritual adultery against Moses. And so the crowd runs because Jesus has sort of crossed the line as far as they're concerned. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we realize that following Jesus is crossing the line. There's no going back. You've met the apex. You're at the top of the mountain. So where are you going to go but Jesus? That's why that the author of Hebrews says to sin against that would be to trod the, the underfoot the Son of God. It would be to step across the bloodline of covenant to go back to Moses. Jesus becomes the ultimate example of covenant to go across his blood, to go back to works, back to effort, back to self, back to performance, would be to try and exit the covenant that he shed in his own blood. This is what is happening with God and Abraham in the cutting of the pieces. Now, we're going to get into the next verse where Abram goes to work. That becomes a problem, and then it becomes, it becomes a template for something that becomes a problem, which is where we put our efforts into covenant. We'll get into that tomorrow. As you can see, there's just a little more every day that fleshes this out, makes this beautiful panoramic display of the love of God. We'll do some more of that tomorrow. See you then. God bless.